Welcome everyone to another episode of Tales of the 2S LGBTQ+. My name is Douglas Parsons. Today is all about your ML gay. That's right, Janice Irwin is my guest today. Now, you've seen Janice all over social media in many different ways, and you really get to know about her life, not just as a politician, but herself as a woman. We're going to explore that today and find out more outside the politics as well. But of course, I love talking politics, so we're going to include that as well. If for some reason you're not familiar with Janice Irwin, let me tell you more about her. Janice was elected to the Legislative Assembly of Alberta as the representative for Edmonton Highlands Norwood in 2019. She serves as the official opposition deputy whip and the critic for status of women and LGBT2S plus issues. Now, prior to being elected, Janice was a high school teacher and vice principal in rural Alberta. Edmonton soon became her home when she began working for Alberta Education as the Senior Manager for Social Studies and then as the Executive Director for High School Curriculum. She, of course, does hold a Bachelor's Degree in Education from the University of Alberta and a Master's Degree in Education from the University of Calgary. She has served as a board member and volunteer with many community organizations. You see her cross-country skiing. She does love getting outside, biking, running, and exploring Edmonton's beautiful River Valley. Today on Tales of the 2S LGBTQ+, we talk to Janice Irwin about her background, politics, and everything in between. Now, before I bring Janice to your screen and or your listening ears, Tales of the 2S LGBTQ+, is a weekly audio and video podcast that showcases the remarkable people found within our rainbow community. By listening to our stories, which happen to be your stories, we connect with these amazing people who are being introduced to new ideas and topics. If you're watching here on YouTube, do make sure you hit subscribe, get those notifications. And of course, word of mouth is the best way to pass on word about these stories. Send people links. If this is your first time here listening to Tales of the 2S LGBTQ+, welcome. Go check some of our backstories. You're going to find some amazing people, and you'll soon become smitten with them. We appreciate everything. Now, I'm based here in Edmonton, Alberta, as is Janice. And it's important for me to say this, as I like to acknowledge that I'm living within Treaty 6 territory and within the Métis homelands and Métis nation of Alberta Region 4, a traditional meeting grounds, gathering place, and traveling route to the Cree, Sado, Blackfoot, Métis, Dene, and Nakota Sioux. I acknowledge all the many First Nations, Métis, and Inuit whose footsteps have marked these lands for centuries. I'm grateful for the traditional knowledge keepers and elders who are with us today and those who have come before. I am opening myself up to listen, to learn and understand, and I hope you join me on this journey as we learn truth. I make this acknowledgement as always, as an act of reconciliation and gratitude 
to those on whose territory we reside. Today on Tales of the 2S LGBTQ+, my very special guest is your ML gay, Janice Irwin. And it's now time to bring her up on the screen and your listening ears. Welcome, Janice. Hello. Thanks, Douglas. What a what an introduction there. I thank you. I think it's always important. And as I mentioned, I'm on this journey as well. 2021, this was Tales of the LGBTQ. And it is my hope to be able to use this platform to elevate 2S voices. Looking at initialism, I did decide to put 2S first. That's contrary to government as well. No, it's not even. And I, in my critic role, uh, I was first appointed a critic for LGBTQ issues and I made sure it was LGBTQ 2S plus issues. And now um, while it still says that on my business card, I try to remember when I'm, you know, posting on social media and whatnot to try to try to use 2S LGBTQ plus, but even that it's tough, right? Because it's hard to find one. Yeah. One, one, one way to land that's consistent and that supports everybody. Yeah, exactly. It, at the beginning of April, a conversation with Michael Bach, who is a founder for Canadian Diversity and Inclusion, we had a conversation about initialism and the different ways of being able to say things. Who are we doing this for? Are we doing it for ourselves and others? I asked people to come back at the beginning of April to hear more about that conversation. Hey, Janice, my husband does not listen to my podcast. I will have to divorce him, I'm sure, because of that. But he got excited when I told him that his favorite, Janice Irwin, was coming on board. And so he asked me to ask you his question. Ooh. How is Oregano doing today? Wow. Wow. That I was ready for a hard-hitting question, but I don't know if I was ready for that. What is your husband's name? Jared. Okay, of course. Hi, Jared. And thank you for that question. Just before we went live, I did mention to you, Douglas, that Oregano never, he's never met a Zoom or a podcast that he doesn't like to crash. So I wouldn't be shocked if he makes an appearance. Um, but right now it looks like he settled down for one of his many naps during the day, but he's doing well. It's not easy having a, a famous cat. It's a lot of work, but I do my best to try to just manage his schedule and Oh my goodness, I literally just, he literally just strolled in as I said that. So that's funny. <laughs> he knew to make an appearance. You yeah, know? This, this is absolutely hilarious, right? He hears me talking about him and, and there he is. So I know the podcast listeners can't see, but just know that in all his fluffy goodness, he is saying hello to everybody. So thanks it's for stopping perfect. by. Welcome to Tales of the 2S LGBTQ plus oregano. We'll ask you some hard qu hitting questions later on about life living with your ML gay and how difficult yeah, it is. An exclusive. <laughs> now, you grew up in Barhead, Alberta. Barhead is an hour northwest of Edmonton. It's not known as being a particularly center or center left leaning area. Arnold Viersen of the Conservative Party represents that area federally. How were you able to sift through the conservative information propaganda while you were growing up and be able to find your NDP roots while growing up in this area? Yeah, no, great question. And you're 
I think the answer to your question about how did I find my NDP roots is I didn't when I was out there. Well, the reality is it was a very conservative and still is a very uh, conservative community. And I, it's funny, I've told this story many times, so it's not a secret that the conservatives can use against me. But I actually, my political involvement didn't start with the NDP. It started with the progressive conservatives in Barhead, Alberta. As a kid, a teenager, I was interested in politics. And All I knew in Barhead, Alberta, was that the PCs at the time, the MLA, his name was Ken Kowalski, somebody who'd been there for a very long time and uh, was just, that's that's how you vote, is you vote uh, for the Conservatives. And so start, I volunteered, I I can freely admit I volunteered, I was a a card-carrying member, in fact, of the PCs as a teenager. I look back on that, and obviously it's humorous to think of, but it really wasn't until I headed to Edmonton and went to university and started to just meet more and more folks and really just learn a lot more about my own identity, my own values. And in fact, so what happened, just to give people a bit of a trajectory of my life, is I left Barhead, age 17, to go to university, did my undergrad degree. And right away took a job teaching in another part of rural Alberta. So I started teaching in Balfe, Alberta, which is for anybody who knows Balfe, it's near Camrose. It's not even a town, it's a village (laughs) and uh, another conservative area. And it wasn't until years later, I taught for a few years. I took another teaching job in Forestburg, Alberta. And then I came back to Edmonton. It wasn't until then that I found the NDP that I started volunteering. That's about, gosh, 2000. uh, 10, 2011, I came back to Edmonton again. It was a lot of different, different paths and my own values and my own political journey, for sure, that got me to where I am today. I'm sk- skipping a whole lot of parts, but I'm sure we'll touch oh, on that. We'll come back because we're going to flesh everything out. Now, before we hit the record button, I said that I'm going to be asking you a question that I'm confident that you've never been asked before. And so it's coming up. Whoa. When you were... Growing up in Barhead, you went to the high school. What was it like having those kids from Swan Hills bus in every day? How were they treated? Wow. Wow. That's like such a niche reference to to Swan Hills. What's your connection to Swan Hills? I need to know. I taught junior high and high school in Swan Hills between 1998 and 2000. And so I was there right at the beginning of the high school that was created at that time. And my two years there was spent with, do the students go to Barhead or do they stay here at home at Swan Hills? And so that's how I learned all about it. So yeah, so how were those kids treated? Wow, fun fact. So I graduated high school in 2002. I think some of those kids were probably staying in Swan Hills because I have to say, I don't know a ton of, I know a couple of kids definitely came from Swan Hills. It was more from some of the other, like Fort Assiniboine, obviously like Nearlandia was a big one, the Dutch Mm -hmm. community near Barhead. But no, I don't recall as many Swan Hills kids. But fun fact, my dad actually worked north of Swan Hills for 40 years and I spent the first two years of my life in Swan Hills and I would have been born. I, yeah, I would have been born there, but they didn't have a hospital yet when I was born. Yeah. My family lived there obviously before me for a number of years. And uh, my dad actually still lives north of Fort Assiniboine between Barhead and Swan Hills near a place called Topland. So. Oh yeah. Okay. I know where you are there when you're making these references. Yeah. Uh, For people who are listening, Swan Hills is like the highest elevation 
village in Alberta, approximately 1,000 people, mostly male, who do live there because of the work that has to be done. Yeah, we're going to have to talk because in 1998, then, you would have been in about grade eight. That's right. Yep. Okay, we may have to name drop some people, including the ones that drove me crazy when they were in grade eight, who went to high school in Barhead. But we'll do that oh, later. Yeah, yeah, we'll do that later because you probably I probably know some of them. So uh, yes, or you have conveniently blocked it from your memory because of your background in education. I really want to touch base on that. Both outside of Camrose that you may mention of going to Forestburg. So how did these experiences as an educator help shape the person who is Janice Irwin today? Yeah, great question. And one of the questions I get asked a lot is how hard it must have been really hard being being a queer teacher in rural Alberta and grappling with that. Another fun fact about me is I didn't come out until later until I was back living in Edmonton. Mm -hmm. As a teacher, I didn't I, I wasn't out and nor was I, you know, truly, I'm not even in denial. I just wasn't grappling with that. I was dating men. And anyways, we won't get into all the specifics, but unless you want, maybe that's another podcast. But, but yeah, the reality is those experiences, even though I wasn't, I wasn't an openly queer woman at the time, those experiences really did shape me just in just like being a teacher, just the, the relationships, the connecting with kids and staff. And I just posted the other day, maybe it was, yesterday, the day before time is confusing, just about a shout out to social studies teachers, because with everything that's going on in the world, and particularly here at home, I pointed to a specific outcome in the high school social studies curriculum, which is totally, totally nerding out there. Exactly. And just pointing out, oh, look at Trudeau's use of the Emergencies Act is exactly outcome 3.8, which, you know, is, uh, like I said, pretty niche pretty niche comment. But the, I, those are the things I, I certainly miss. People say, oh, do you miss teaching? Of course, just like with any job, there's things you don't miss, but there's certainly things I do miss. And that's, I love teaching social studies and I love connecting with kids. Yeah. Does that answer it? I, I could go on oh, about yeah. this. Oh yeah. So can I. And the one thing that I know many people hate is teacher talk. When teachers get together and they talk is there's a special language that we talk when we get together. It just we know. Good point. Know. Good point. We won't alienate all the non-teachers right now. That's a yeah. fair point. Yeah. Exactly. So going into politics now a little bit. So with that lens of an educator, what is it about the kin kindergarten to grade six curriculum that completely misses the mark? Oh, gosh, Douglas, how much time do you have? <laughs> yes. So just for a little bit of context, not quite teacher talk, but more uh, government curriculum talk. So when I did come back to Edmonton after being a vice principal in rural Alberta, the plan was for me to, uh, I can't just answer your question as a politician, I have to ramble on. The plan was I took a job. <laughs> I took a job, which was supposed to be what it would be is I'd be working on the social studies curriculum. And in three years, I would go back to rural Alberta, go back to my school division. Didn't quite happen. I ended up taking on a permanent job. And so I was immersed in social studies curriculum, mostly high school. And then I took on uh, high school social studies and then I took on high school broadly. But we were starting to do the work of looking at the elementary curriculum. Because, of course, the NDP launched curriculum development in a phased approach, looking at K-4 to at that point. Anyways, all that to say, this is a topic I'm very passionate about. And I was so proud when we were in, in government. I say we, I was obviously not a part. I was not an MLA at the time, but I was working in government. Um, just so proud of the fact that it was an evidence-based uh, approach, uh, bringing in the research, bringing in just jurisdictional scans about best practices here in Canada and around the world when it comes to curriculum development. 
And the curriculum documents that we were working on were based on consultation with tens of thousands of folks, of stakeholders, parents, kids, curriculum experts, and on a foundation of multiple perspectives and ensuring what's most important. This Douglas, teachers know this. Most Albertans hopefully know this. Kids need to see themselves in curriculum. And those curriculum documents that we have in front of us right now from the UCP, kids don't, right? It's a Eurocentric approach to particularly social studies that minimizes the experience of racialized folks, as an example. So there's a lot of very troubling elements to these curriculum drafts, which is why so many of us, so many Albertans have said, scrap the draft. This isn't the way forward. And so in that vein, then, what ways can the 2S LGBTQ plus community be highlighted in the curriculum at these early ages? Yeah, and of course, I will and continue to get that I'm just I'm just a queer MLA who's trying to turn all the kids gay with the caveat there that it's not just about queer and trans perspectives. That's certainly one piece is in my graduate work. In fact, I started to unpack what it means to have multiple perspectives in social studies. And of course, people who know the social studies, the current social studies curriculum know that it was pretty revolutionary highlighting Francophone and Indigenous perspectives in particular. And so I started to unpack what could an expansion of multiple perspectives look like? newcomer perspectives, LGBTQ2S plus perspectives, right? The list goes on. And and I was proud of the fact that we were starting to do that. So it, it would be, of course, about incorporating LGBTQ2S plus perspectives, but it's also about conversations about identity. And you start in, in the current curriculum in kindergarten, you talk about you talk about belonging, you talk about identity, right? So it's not about necessarily talking about trans rights to kindergarten kids. No, not at all. But at age-appropriate levels, talking about what it means, what, what identity means. What does it mean mm-hmm. to you? What does it mean to your classmate who has two moms? There are ways to really ensure that we're bringing an inclusive um, approach that very much honors uh, diverse perspectives. Yeah, and it can be done in simple ways as well. A math equation could be Bob and Steve are going to buy a house. And then you have a math question that goes with it. Just having Bob and Steve in the question itself would allow someone like myself who knew at an early age that was queer that, oh, Bob and Steve could buy a house together. They could be friends. They could be roommates. They could be otherwise. But I could at least see myself in a math question. That's a positive. And there's definitely no politicking when it comes to a question like that. I wouldn't think, at least. Yeah. Hey, you may mention of you coming out in your late 20s. So is that when you realized that there was something up inside you? Or was that something that you recognized at an early age and then you just put it away? What happened with you? No, and it's a good question, Douglas. And I will try not to turn this into a therapy session. Cheaper than my therapist. No, it's, it's funny because I do always look back and I think, because it's like, I didn't start coming out journey until mid to late twenties. And again, and not that's late. So if somebody's listening and thinking, oh my gosh, I haven't come out yet. No, there is no right time. And I'm not on table. Yeah. It's not a judgment if you're in your fifties and you haven't come out because that's, it's not about that at all. But for me, I, yeah, I think when I look back, there were probably a lot of indicators and a lot of there were probably things at the risk of sounding ridiculous but like in my subconscious that were certainly there but I wasn't I can truly tell you no I wasn't I wasn't closeting myself for a long time or anything like that it wasn't until honestly I was back in Edmonton and just meeting more and more people and had 
It's that old classic story of having an encounter with a woman for the first time and just, yeah, one thing leading to another and realizing there is, there's something to this. Like I said, it was in, and without getting too, too serious about it, I just, one of the things that I often reflect back on, and I've talked about this in the legislature a lot, Douglas, is just, I, part of me almost, and I won't regret the past at all, but part of me almost wishes I had come to it a little bit earlier, only in the sense that I was a teacher in rural Alberta And I know for a fact that there were kids who were struggling with their own sexuality, with their own identity, and I wasn't there for them. And I didn't. So there were there were home there were homophobic toxic environments in which I, I taught at times. Not always. Don't get me wrong. There were some incredible mm-hmm. folks and allies for sure. I, acknowledging that you know what there were times that I probably heard homophobic slurs and I didn't do enough to stop them. And I think that's I can't change that. But I can, moving forward, do all I can to speak out and to push back and to use my platform to call that crap out. And we saw that no more stark than when than we debated Bill 8. Bill 8, for those folks who don't know, was one of the first pieces of legislation the UCP introduced in 2019, which effectively made it more challenging for um, students to access GSAs, Gay Straight Alliances in schools. And I took that opportunity. We filibustered that bill. We sat in the legislature for hours on end trying to stop it, trying to make that terrible bill a little less bad. We weren't successful, but we were successful in sharing the stories of so many kids and adults and and parents and teachers from across the province who talked about the value of GSAs. And I, I looked back, I talked about the fact that I wasn't a queer I wasn't out at the time and I wasn't there for kids and we didn't have GSAs, but I'm going to do everything I can in my power now as an MLA to change that and to make sure that every kid across this province has a safe space. Yeah, I can understand completely. As I may mention, I was teaching at Swan Hills from 1998 to 2000 and I had just come out before that. And then I went right back in the closet when I realized where I was going to go teach. And I wasn't ready for that to be the out teacher. And I wasn't ready to break down the doors. And I do think back of the things I could have done. I could have said when coming across people in the hallways, but that's what you learn from and you move forward. Exactly as you said. And I do also want to make mention to the people who are listening as a reminder, once the UCP government passed this bill, they went and waded through the pool out front in celebration. Never forget that picture of them in utter joy after they had pushed back on LGBTQ children from being able to be their authentic self. Never forget that, everybody. Hey, as we go through here as well, we've made mention of the 2S LGBTQ+. You also serve as the official opposition critic for the status of women. Ron Orr is the Minister of Culture and oversees the status of women portfolio. What can you tell us about what is happening with the status of women in the province of Alberta when there is a male who is the minister overseeing it? You can't make this stuff up, can you? It's just just horrific. It's it's wild to think that the man in charge of status of women is, yeah, is a white guy from a very conservative rural Alberta. And of course, the UCP will come back and say, that's not true. There's an associate minister and there is an associate minister um, who's responsible for status of women. But one of the things that the NDP did when they were in government was they made status of women a standalone ministry. For various reasons, but 
One of the most important of which is that it's critical in policymaking to have an intersectional lens and to look at the impact of decisions of a proposed legislation on women and gender diverse folks. And as you said, the UCP, they first amalgamated that ministry and all the things they don't care about, culture, multiculturalism, status of women, just kind of throw all those things that don't matter to them into one pot. And then, yeah, and then have just an associate minister for status of women. And we've seen, and this is, I talked about intersectionality, right? We know what intersectional approach is. I I think the audience is pretty, pretty understanding of these topics. And this is a premier who's been on the record calling intersectionality, quote, a kooky theory. So what message does that send when the the very premier of this province thinks that a gender-based lens is nonsense, thinks that you shouldn't be analyzing the impact of your crucial decisions that impact, you know, millions of people that you shouldn't be looking at them from from their impact on on women in marginalized groups. So to answer your question, what is the status of women in Alberta today? Oh my goodness, it's it's not great. And the pandemic has absolutely exacerbated many of the challenges that women and gender diverse folks face, right? Yeah, absolutely. And statistics and facts have shown women have been pushed back because of the COVID pandemic. And Oh, okay, that's another topic. That's a big, long topic. I want to give you thanks because you helped elevate Pride Corner on White when a photo of yourself and Claire Perrin was taken and put out there into the social media world. Not just the picture I want to thank you for, but also taking the brunt of criticism, people going against with what we are doing out there. Yes, it's a role that you play as an MLA, but how are you able to separate yourself from these voices who are speaking hate in your private messages, emails, et cetera? How are you able to separate and rise above it? Yeah, great question. And first of all, I just got to give the hugest props to Claire and to you and Erica. Oh gosh, I don't want to name people because I'll miss people, but just the entire Pride Corner team, like, what? Yeah, I just love it so much. And I'm always apologetic that I don't get down there more often than I'd like. Northsider, it's hard to get all the way to White Ave, right? It's it's not easy. I got to represent 118. So I can't just spend all my time on White. No, I'm just kidding. I just mostly I'm just too busy half the time. But yeah, I, I just huge props to all of you involved. And it's just been become such a magical thing. And it was so funny, because I posted that photo. When was it like last summer, I think August or something like that. And like people were like hearing about Pride Corner for the first time and all these trolls, of course, came out. And I was like, folks, I've been there before. Like we had a big dance party the summer previous. I remember there was like a TikTok I filmed and I'm like, where have you all been? You're just learning about this now. Hey, I was happy to spread the word about the the great work. But you saw from that. Yeah, there were so much hate and so many gross messages. And Janice was picking on Christians and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, heck no. Like, Let me point you to countless Christians who are so supportive of our community and their their Jesus is not a hateful uh, one. And so first of all, yeah, absolutely not. And then secondly, some of the positives that came out of that, I remember I shared not long after that post from a young person who was grappling with with her own identity and her message. I I was like a year ago now, but uh, so I won't totally remember it, but her message was something to the effect of seeing you and seeing people like that open and visible and unafraid. I'm making up exactly what it said, but just the point being like, 
that kind of work matters. Being visible matters. To, and if it, if one person saw that post, saw Pride Corner, realized that there are people who are fighting for their city to be safer for them, then kudos. And we do, like, to answer your question, um, we of course I get a lot of hate and I get a lot of crap, but you nailed it. I'm, I'm a politician and I have a platform. I'm very fortunate to have a big social media platform. So I want to use it. Let's talk about privilege, right? I am a white cisgender woman with a whole lot of privilege. I can mostly walk through this city fairly freely, right? I can. But I also know that there's a whole lot of people in our city who can't. I think about Black Muslim women who we've had countless attacks on Black Muslim women in our city. I have friends in the community, the Black Muslim community, who don't feel safe to to walk in their neighborhoods. I think about trans folks, right? Particularly racialized trans folks who we know on average experience far higher levels of violence and discrimination than white queer folks. And so it's on us. It's on people like you, me, and others to, to amplify their voices and to push back and to call it out. I don't know what the statistics are here in Canada, but last year in 2021, over 300 African-American transgender women were murdered. Think about that for a second, everyone. 300 African-American transgender women were killed in one year. And I would bet that number is low, too, because of people being misgendered, just not necessarily knowing that folks who were murdered were trans. And I I don't know the numbers in Canada either, but we know that it is still not a, a safe place for trans folks. Hey, let's just talk about racialized folks as well, given what we've seen lately, in particular, with the rise of white supremacy. We got a lot we need to confront in this country, don't we? We have so much. It used to be that we could be looking at the states and go, oh, it's the United States. They're up to something again. But now we're looking at ourselves here and we're not liking what we're doing. And we're going to have these serious conversations over the next number of years because where we're at right now is scary because the closet doors have been opened and what's inside it is not pretty. And it's going to be a conversation that we need to have. Speaking of conversations, 2023 is a huge year politically here in this province because we have another provincial election coming up. And the time of this podcast taping is mid-February. It looks like it the UCP party could potentially fail in coming back into a majority. It's right for the pickings and rightfully. But we live in Alberta and much like Alberta weather, wait five minutes and the winds of change have taken place. Yeah. What is the NDP go- party going to do over the next number of months to ensure that an NDP voice will come through in the battleground cities of Red Deer, Calgary, Lethbridge, Medicine Hat. What will the NDP party have to do? Love it. No, great question. And I think one of the things already, Douglas, that we're up against is it felt felt like in 2020, 2019, oh man, that next election is so far away. It's coming up quickly, right? It really is. 2023 is, is suddenly very close. And one of the challenges I'm already seeing is that so often, I mean, I'm pretty active on social media, I get a million messages a day. And a lot of those messages are like, Oh, I can't wait for the NDP to be back. And, 
you've got this, that sort of thing. And I say to people, first, thank you. Thanks for reaching out. But in no way can we assume that we have this next election. Yeah. Absolutely not. And that would be a fatal, a fatal move by any of us in the NDP and any of our supporters to assume that we've got this, right? Because people look at polling numbers, people look at the status of the UCP, the infighting, the terrible leadership from this premier and think, oh, they're, they're done. No, like you oh. said, politics is a fickle beast and we've got a lot of work ahead of us if we are going to form government in 2023. And so to answer your question, what does that look like? How is the NDP going to be in a position so that they do form government? And a couple of things. But the main thing that I want to really reinforce is that people know, most people know how bad this UCP government have been. They know that Jason Kenney has been a, a poor leader. But I, I, I hear from people all the time that they don't. we don't need to just be talking about how awful Jason Kenney and the UCP are. Certainly, there's room for us to remind folks because, hey, listen, I'm immersed in this every day. And there are things all the time that I forget about. Oh, yeah, remember when they did that? And remember when they did this, right? So absolutely, we need to continue to remind folks. But more important than that, more important than focusing on the UCP is offering a vision, right? People want us to be in opposition. They want us to be oppositional, but they want us to be propositional. And we need, it's on us, it's on Rachel Notley, our entire um, Alberta NDP team, to present a hopeful positive vision for Albertans. And so we're doing the work now to frame what that vision is, what that platform is going to be. And we build that by talking with people, right? By hearing from Albertans all over this province. What are the key issues that matter to you? What do you want to see from an NDP government? Um, how can we make these things a reality? And it's not going to come from on high. It's going to come from listening and I'm proud of the work we've done. We've done a lot of consultations through Alberta's future um, because, of course, a lot of these conversations focus on the economy and what does a healthy economy look like that leaves no one behind. And then there's been so many other issues that have really been top of mind for Albertans. Healthcare. So focusing back on a strong, publicly funded healthcare system. Education, right? Strengthening our education system. Supporting teachers and education workers. Making sure that students are safe and cared for in our schools. The list goes on. But again, it really comes back to, to, to positioning ourselves as a government in waiting without taking anything for granted. Amen on that. And I'm glad to hear that because my worry is that it will just be, well, Jason Kenney did that. Jason Kenney did this uh, because there is the threat that a Brian Jean will become leader and people simply will go, oh, this is who we want instead. And we're just going to elect him, even though all the same people are still in place. And I will never understand the fact that only certain people are ministers. We have a minister of justice who gets put away for a while. And it's another minister who takes over because an energy minister now in charge of justice, boy, there can't be a conflict of interest there. Good Lord. Never, ever. Hey, Janice, you're a busy woman. And so I thank you for your time today. The age of 15 was an important year for myself because that's when I realized about myself. There were family issues going on at that point. It was an, a time of my life when things opened up in good and bad ways. I realized I was a magical self. Nice. If you had the opportunity to sit on a park bench beside a 15-year-old Janice Irwin, what would you say to her? Wow. 
Love it. Gosh, Douglas, let me think on this. I think like I have to, again, I have to always acknowledge my privilege and I I did truly have a pretty privileged, um, upbringing. I know there were tough times. And and I know there were a lot of things at the time that maybe didn't make sense. And of course, it wasn't until later that I truly grappled with my own identity and sexuality. But I was probably not 15 year old Janice that would have needed the talking to or the the sit down. I think for me, it was probably more 25 year old Janice where I'm starting to grapple with things. And I've talked about mental health before my own struggles with mental health. And that's something for me that's just really uh, hits close to home. And, and I know in my 20s, there were some really, really tough times. And so I think to just look back at 25-year-old Janice, perhaps, and say that things might not make sense right now, and you might be struggling with a lot at the moment, but I promise you, might take a few more years, but it will all make sense. And that you'll be living your best life in, uh, in Edmonton with your cat and with a supportive network of people all around you. Yeah, I had to flip your question a little bit there because uh, for me, I think it's that's where that's the Janice that would have needed the, those words of advice. Oh, that's wonderful. It's perfect. As I may mention, we're taping this episode middle of February for a release in middle of March. Right around the date of release is International Women's Day. Why is International Women's Day so needed this year? Oh, goodness. Yeah, no, a really good point. March 8th is International Women's Day. And every year I try to mark that when I am in the legislature, try to ask the government a question about it, try to at least make a statement. Because as we've seen, particularly over the last two years, the COVID pandemic has truly had an impact on women and on gender diverse folks. And it's on us. I still remember, Douglas, one of the, the first times I raised the issue of women in the economic recovery. It was right when the pandemic was starting. I think it was around April 2020. And we knew already that this was going to have impacts on women, given that women still tend to be primary caregivers, the impact on women re-entering the workforce, all those things. So we asked about that. And I remember this UCP government mocking us, laughing at us. And so this is what we're up against. We've got a government that continues at every turn to marginalize women. In their last budget address, they didn't mention women once. We've got a budget coming up here in the next little while. Uh, We'll be paying attention to that. They'll be paying attention to whose voices this government amplifies and where they choose to provide funding. And so for us, International Women's Day is an opportunity to just continue to raise these issues, to fight for women, not just women like me, white cisgender women, racialized women, who again, we know, especially racialized women working in low paying jobs, who've been very hard, very disproportionately impacted by this pandemic. Yeah. And so use it as an opportunity to highlight the issues and to fight for change. Thank you for this. You're running away, I know, but I appreciate that you've given me so much time today and I greatly appreciate. There is a reason why you are the ML gay and (laughs) you are loved. So everyone, do seek out information about Janice a couple of different ways. AlbertaNDP.ca. You can also learn more from the AlbertaNDPCaucus.ca. And in there, you can check out your MLAs. That would be Janice Irwin. Truthfully, everyone, find her on the social medias. You're going to learn everything about her there. And about oregano. And oregano, I just have to say meow, 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 and meow. He loved that. And he says meow back. Much meows, he says. So. Excellent. And the other one's just sleeping. You know, we're, we're okay. Thank you again, Janice. On behalf of Janice Irwin, my name is Douglas Parsons. 
You've been listening to Tales of the 2S LGBTQ+. If this is your first time listening to us today, thank you for listening. I do hope you check out previous episodes where we talk to a wide array of people within our rainbow community. If you have any questions and you want to find out more, maybe get some advice, you can reach out to me on any of the social medias as well. Thank you again. Reminding you all to be good and always text when you get home. Until next time, everybody.